I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. As part of our commitment to Opioid Healthcare Response Initiative and the Physician Wellness Program at the Palm Beach County Medical Society, we're speaking with doctors, doctors who have some very personal experiences with their own opioid uses and opioid addictions. Today, our guest is Dr. Alan Schwartz. He's a New York transplant who's been practicing in South Florida for some time now. Thanks for joining us. And please share with us your journey. My journey started in 19. 19- 1992, while I was a resident, I had wisdom teeth surgery and I got codone prescribed after that. I became addicted to that. I felt it after the second dose, and I knew that something that is different from all other medications, the way it affected me, I was very swollen and in a lot of pain and bruised and uncomfortable. And then five minutes later, after taking medication, I felt better than I felt in years, or so I thought. That was the start of it. You know, things didn't really progress too fast at the beginning. I got hooked on it. I had a few more prescriptions. Then I was able to stop. It became very stressful. I was early in my career and I was worried about throwing everything away and I didn't realize I was addicted. I thought I just got very dependent on it too quickly, liked too much, however you want to phrase that. I was able to stop. Finished my training in 1996. My wife and I relocated to Florida and started working as a pulmonologist, critical care, very busy practice, three-man group, running around, hospital to hospital, making rounds all morning, and then consults, new procedures, and the office. Very busy, a lot of stress. I enjoyed pathology. I didn't enjoy the lifestyle at all. And I became committed to my patients, committed to what I was doing. It wasn't until after another, I should have had both sets of wisdom teeth removed at the same time. I hadn't had any opiates in years. I thought I would be able to handle it, that I would just be able to take it for pain. I had dry socket. It was a complicated procedure. I was in a lot of pain. I needed them for a short time. And then, of course, trouble coming off. That was really the beginning of my downfall in terms of being hooked on opiates. I worked for several years on opiates. And when you're on opiates, initially you feel like you're energized, you feel like you're talkative, and you you can work hard. And then things start to turn on you and everything starts to change. It's not nearly the same feeling it was. And at that point, it's usually too late. You can't just stop or you'll go into withdrawal. And I had stopped so many times on my own, putting myself through withdrawal. It was almost like it was happening every week. I'd be sick for three days and then couldn't take it and end up back on. And sometimes I'd be off for a week or two and then back on. And it was at this point, my wife knew what was going on and affecting the marriage. I had little kids and work was very busy. Things got worse as you develop tolerance and need higher doses. Things start to turn. I was able to keep up with the work for the most part. I had started to fall behind on my dictations. But for the most part, work was okay. I didn't have any issues with patients or doctors or things like that. I did know that I was emotionally labile. Sometimes I'd be happy and joyful. Other times I would be irritable and angry and frustrated. Mood swings may have been noticed, but not much more than that. I had somebody that I was buying from who was getting from a physician. So I had a dealer who I had met in my barber shop. After maybe a year or so, he ended up in trouble and said, oh, I know a doctor that buys from me. And this was big press. And so they jumped at it and they set me up. They knew I was working. I was also doing intensivist work then. I was on call. I was not coming home. I was in the hospital for two straight nights. They sold me oxycodone. And then the next day I had wanted hydrocodone. They said, we have it. And when I went to get it, I got arrested. 
that was the beginning of a new chapter in my life. Things fell apart fast. You can imagine what it's like just from a personal perspective, married and having kids. And also, you know, I was fired from my job. My license was suspended. All my board certifications were suspended and I was out of work. Went to treatment. I did a lot of treatment inpatient for maybe six, eight weeks and then outpatient for a few months. I was told I should move into a halfway house, which I did. I was away from my family for about a year. Things were bad. It was depressed. My money was gone. I did find AA then. I had met somebody previously who I had known from years earlier who sponsored me and started to work together. I was looking at a very long prison term and no work, no money, a lot of terrible things going on. I started to gravitate towards AA. I went to meetings. I started going to meetings every day and I started work the steps with my sponsor. I got sponsees. I worked the steps with them and I would enjoy the meetings. And even though life on the outside was pretty bad, I mean, on the inside, I was starting to feel okay. And then little by little, I had to deal with my legal obligations and financial obligations and personal obligations with myself, my family. That took a while. That was about a five-year process where I didn't work. Then I really started to enjoy being with addicts and talking to addicts and relate to addicts and tell them my story. Basically made a career switch from pulmonary medicine and critical care medicine to addiction medicine. And that's when I started working in the field. I was able to get board certified in addiction medicine, working in the field ever since. Uh, I love it. And I don't hide my story. I figure if people don't want to hear it or don't like me or they're going to judge me for it, then that's up to them and I'll move on. I decided I wasn't going to hide under a rock. I was going to tell people what happened. That included going to meetings and working with my sponsor, working with other people. And now there was an opportunity to actually help other addicts again professionally. So I started to do that. And I've been working in the field for 10 years now. Most of them find it inspiring to see that I was able to get through it all. And I love it. I feel incredibly lucky. Never thought that I'd be able to end up where I am now. I didn't feel that I deserved it. This was a career-ending event, but it wasn't, at least not the way I thought it would be. I'm their doctor, but I'm also their advocate. I hear all the time, you're different than any other doctor I've ever had in this field before. I tell them why. And not that I'm trying to be different, but I'm trying to help. I'm pleased with how it's going so far, and I feel there's a lot more to do. I wish I could do even more than I'm doing now. A couple questions come to mind. You said that you had the dental procedures and then it was out of control. What about it made it out of control? What seemed to be the tipping point that put you into trouble? And I'm going to put the back end of this question at the same time. What made it stop? I'll answer the second part first. Okay. What made it stop was simply getting arrested and being in jail and withdrawing in jail where I didn't, wasn't given anything and I was sick, very sick for days there. I was so scared and shocked at what happened that I had other issues on my mind, not just withdrawals. I really felt like life was basically over. By the time I got out of jail and I went to treatment, I had already finished withdrawing and I didn't have any detox meds. I never got Suboxone, stayed abstinent right off the bat. And again, a lot of that was fear. I think sometimes if you don't respond to positive reinforcement, you'll respond to negative reinforcement. And that's kind of the way it was for me. Give somebody who is not an addict, strong opiate, oxycodone, for example, most of the time they'll get sick or they'll hate it, they'll get nauseous. 
not with an addict. When you give somebody who is destined to be an addict, so to speak, in hindsight, and you ask them the first time you took an opiate, what happened? And not only will they tell you that they loved it, but they'll remember everything about it. Over 20 years ago, and I remember where I was, when I took it, who I spoke to on the phone that day, what time I picked my wife up, all sorts of things that serve as triggers for relapse later on. This is not a normal reaction to something. Somebody gets an opiate, they get sick. An addict takes an opiate and they're they feel like this is the answer. They feel great. And then the brain starts working on ways to try and get more and more. Didn't take long at all. Some people are put on opiates. They try to take them the right way. They get dependent on them and then they get addicted. But other people can happen right off the bat. First dose, second dose, you can just pretty much tell. And that's a dangerous reaction. If you give somebody an opiate and they, they just love it right off the bat, it's something to be concerned about. Do we in medicine have any sense who is likely to fall into that pattern? Do we have any ability to predict? There are questionnaires that try to predict what patients are at risk for addiction and what patients are at risk for diversion and things like that. The biggest thing is history. If they've ever had a history of being addicted to anything, any substance at all, then they're clearly at high risk. But there's other things as well. Family history is very important too. And if there's a family history of alcoholism or addiction and the patient has the right environmental cues and exposure, then they very likely happen to them or not. It's, it's not strict. Strictly a genetic predisposition, but it's a big component to it. So between your, your history and your family history, there's a lot of information right there. Then things are get a little subtle after that having to do with behavior. Some type of aberrancy. One is I lost my prescription and they need another prescription. They're trying to go to the pharmacy. They, they're asking for refills too soon. You can just kind of sense that there may be a problem developing here. And the other thing that was happening back then was they were giving 90-day supplies. They weren't an addict when they started. There's a good chance they'll be when they finish because that's just so much. They're certainly going to create dependence and withdrawal if they try to stop. And then at that point, it's hard to stop. And people will do what they need to do to secure more. And that leads to the whole addiction and all those consequences. There probably are some other factors in the history, depending on if they've ever had any kind of problem with anything before or the type of behavior, or maybe they have a problem with a cross addiction. For example, they have a problem with gambling, or they have a sex addiction, or they have a food addiction, or they have an eating disorder. That would put them at higher risk. Certainly, if there's underlying mental health condition, if they have depression, anxiety, bipolar disease, all those conditions have an increased incidence of substance abuse. A lot you can tell from the history, and then there's a lot you can tell from once things get rolling a little bit. You kind of identified your tipping point the day that you were arrested. In retrospect, would you say that perhaps that was a silver lining for you, and where might have things gone if that hadn't happened that day? Oh, definitely. It had a silver lining. I had been trying to stop repeatedly and was unsuccessful. I don't know what would have happened. It would have gone on. I could easily be dead. It was torture going through it. I don't recommend to do it that way, to get clean that way, but nevertheless, it worked out well for me in the sense that I got very lucky and I was able to stop and, and then they want to throw my career away. And I realized that I don't think I'm a bad person. I think I'm a good person, and uh, but I had a bad problem. If I could salvage my career, I didn't know which way it was going to go. I didn't know I was going to end up working in the field. 
Do you think that maybe one of the tipping points towards getting better was the acknowledgement that you could not do it yourself, that you needed help, that maybe one of the things that hinders the getting away from addiction is they don't come to terms that most people cannot do this alone. Do you agree with that? Observations? I, I totally agree with that. I'm a living example because I tried on my own every which way. With the doctor, I tried with my family. And I, I mean, I had every plan. I was going to taper this way. Then I was going to taper that way. Then I had all sorts of plans and it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't even close. And it wasn't until I was able to get help that I realized that there was some hope. And the help, it came from professionals, but even more so it came from other addicts who had been there, who had gone through it, and they were going to show me how to do it. And I followed them. And I said, just show me what you need me to do. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me, you know, and I'll do it. And I did. I started to feel good and all obsession to use was all gone. And I was ready to go back to work. What advice do you have for fellow physicians who might find themselves where you were at? People need to realize that it's very rare, if possible at all, to do this on your own, to just stop and stay stopped and really have recovery to the point where you're not a miserable person, but you're a happy person, functional person. If anybody suffering going through this, they should call me. Call anyone to get help. They need to reach out somewhere. The important thing is to just reach out. Doctor meetings for people that have addiction, impaired practitioner programs, which create a lot of fear in people, but I would have to say that it saved me. I was in the program for five years. It consists of a meeting once a week, random urine drug testing, and an obligation. I found it to be very helpful. People who I call them sober supports, people who have kind of know where you're going through, either have been there or know about it and now are going to be there for you and help you. But if you find yourself in a difficult situation, you can try to get yourself out of it before it's too late. Go back to early on when you realized that you had a problem, but you didn't do anything about it. Is that because you didn't realize that it really was a problem? Early on, I think there was a lot of denial. I thought that, oh, you're getting hooked on this. You got to stop. I wasn't happy. I wasn't in any kind of a recovery program and I missed it. And I was just, I was irritable. In the beginning, I think I was totally in denial. And that's usually how it is. Most people try to approach them. You're going to get resistance and you're going to get pushback because there's naturally just denial that takes place, especially when people think that I'm more functional on it. A lot of people do think that early on. It doesn't last and it turns on you. Eventually, you'll realize there's a problem. And if you don't reach out for help, you can become very desperate. I was near suicidal. I really didn't care whether I lived or I died. And I had little kids, and that's a terrible thing to say, but that's the way I felt. A lot of avenues people can go down now to try to get help. I think it confuses a lot of people. I ask this because you not only had the problem, you're now in a physician who treats the addicts, Maybe too many people think that all they have to do is go to a methadone maintenance clinic and they'll be okay. Medication-assisted therapies versus the psychological, how do you blend them? I didn't think that I didn't need to be on Suboxone. I, I would have loved to have been on Suboxone, and I did need Suboxone. I just didn't get it. I had a short course of it. When you're in, a, in the midst of an addiction, you have blinders on. And so anything that might help you, you're just going to kind of shut away because you don't want to do anything that's going to take away from what you're enjoying. It made it a lot harder. And I think that Suboxone, if done the right way, could have been great for me. It's a deal changer for lots of other patients now because the whole fear initially of stopping is based on withdrawal, being in pain, 
mental anguish, physical anguish of trying to stop. It's the fear that you have to do that again and again and again, that fear could be lifted with medication-assisted treatment. Start a different medicine and feel relatively, I hate to use the word normal, but you feel, feel normal. You feel well and you're not emotionally erect. That is a big chunk of, of recovery right there. That starts the whole process off. Much easier to get on the right side of the road now than it used to be because of medication-assisted treatment. That makes it a lot easier for an addict who's afraid of withdrawal to get help. The other thing that addicts have is they're constantly craving. Any little thing might remind them, trigger them, and the next thing you know, they could be off into a dangerous place. Anti-craving therapy is, is something that's crucial. Suboxone does this, but non-opiate therapy for maintenance does this as well, naltrexone. Take away somebody's cravings and make them feel good physically. Now you've opened the door where they're really going to be much more receptive to recovery. Once somebody is physically feeling well and they're calm and relaxed, you can have a better conversation with them and come up with a treatment plan. It's a total deal changer. I think medication-assisted treatment is a wonderful thing. I prescribe Suboxone to many patients. Physically now with medication-assisted treatment, knowing that it's a lot easier to do, there's still the whole idea of somebody who's got a problem of being in denial and who wants to admit that you may become the talk of the town. So nobody wants to have to go through that. And a lot of that is based on fear it doesn't have to end one's career. It just doesn't have to be that way. Earlier on, I, I don't recommend doing it the way I did it. To make a call and see an addiction physician, and I have several patients who are physicians, and whether you see somebody who's been an addict themselves or not, it doesn't matter. If they know what they're doing, they can help you. You don't really have to even necessarily interrupt things, depending on how far advanced things have gotten. Depending on what you're using, you may need to get detoxed. And a lot of detox now can be done as an outpatient, especially just opiate detox can be done as an outpatient. There are some detoxes, benzos and alcohol, for example, that require more intensive monitoring. Would you agree that the alternative of not seeking some type of intervention, some type of treatment, that alternative could be a lot worse than the consequences of actually admitting you have a problem? Oh, sure. And if you're an addict, sooner or later, it's going to catch up because... Tolerance continues to go up. You know, the behaviors start to get worse. You start to get more desperate, you feel worse. All the consequences start to build up. You have a lot of negative consequences in different areas of your life, and things will get worse almost for sure. They don't want to think about that, or they just say they don't care. If you don't care if you live or die, you don't care if things are going to get worse. What they need to realize is that things can be so much better. If you want help, help is available. It's as simple as a phone call. And take it from there. Be a family man, be a professional, be a member of society where you felt when you first decided to become a doctor in the, in the first place. An incredibly important message. Dr. Alan Schwartz, thanks so much for sharing this very intimate personal story. Thank you so much. Welcome.